Welcome back to Atlanta Diaries. I'm your host Enma Popley. Thank you for joining me. In Atlanta Diaries, we celebrate unique and inspiring stories of breakthrough women to help future generations create their own. If you want to know more about Atlanta or listen to more episodes, you can visit my website www.enmapopley.com. You can also share feedback or suggestions there. My guest today is Jaya Padmanabhan. Jaya is a veteran journalist, essayist and fiction writer. An undergrad in psychology and a software engineer, Jaya made a foray in the world of writing much later. Yet in her 20 years in the field of journalism, she has received 30 awards, most notably from the San Francisco Press Club and Writers Digest. She has also garnered 8 fiction awards, including the Laurie and Hemingway Award for short fiction. Jaya is the author of Transactions of Belonging, a collection of short stories published in 2014. She serves as editor emeritus, contributing writer and board member of India Currents, and she is a contributing editor at Ethnic Media Services, working with journalists on critical issues that affect communities of color. Though Jaya is not a trained journalist, yet she found her place in the world of writing. What was the epiphany that led her to move to writing and how she navigated this journey we talked about all that and more without further ado over to my conversation with jaya hi jaya welcome to the show thank you anma it's a pleasure to be here you have a bachelor's degree in psychology sales person in an oil company and then software engineer what was the epiphany which led you to move to writing Yeah so there are several parts to that with a degree in psychology i just landed in a sales job in india working for bharat petroleum and that was through sheer stubbornness on the part of my father who wanted me to get one of these corporate jobs and i wanted to work for an ad agency at that time and i had started working for an ad agency but he asked me to write this exam for a sales officer's position and they selected me and it just turned out that i was the only woman to be selected at that time i worked for a large oil company but then i decided to get married and move to the us and i had to start off again you know you were advancing in your career and then you have to stop and you're looking at a completely new horizon The good part of that is that it's a much needed reset it makes you kind of like think is this where i want to go what do i want to do next and so i found that fork in that road i didn't know what to do with myself and just a very crazy incident i was playing chess one day with my husband and he said oh you're good at logic so maybe you'll be good at computer science i was like okay then let's do that <laughs> so i um i enrolled and graduated with a degree in computer science and worked in the industry for many years coding just seemed to be taking me more and more away from my practices my own internal practices of reading writing whether it was for myself or you know small little poems or anybody who's known me as a child has always known that i'm i'm a writer but i just felt i didn't have the life experience to be a writer for me i just felt that being a successful writer you needed to have a body of experience 
And as a 30-year-old, I didn't think I had that, you know. So I said, well, you know, in a short while. But then, you know, when I had my children and then I said, okay, what do I want to do now again? (laughs) I really don't want to be sitting in office and not having the opportunity to read read the kind of books I like to read, just fiction, nonfiction, anything that moves the needle on empathy or inspiration. So I started a television company to get that inspiration. And that was in dialogue, where I interview a whole bunch of really famous writers and musicians and movie stars. And, and I found it so easy to do that and scripting the whole thing and writing it and editing it. It was just like one of these projects where just dear to my heart. And those in-dialogue interviews were done 20 years ago, but I think there's a lot to be taken out of that. And as I was doing in-dialogue, I began to write. And I found myself suddenly becoming really successful because a couple of stories I'd written won awards. And it's not easy in this industry to kind of win awards. And as a fledgling writer, to actually make it there, I thought, okay, maybe I need to have the guts to actually follow my dream because there might be something here. So that was where I ended up. That's quite a journey, Jayar. I can only imagine how hard and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. A lot of times, you know, I think it's only when you're out of your comfort zone. It's easy to do the same thing every day, right? And you get up in the morning. It's very predictable. You know what you're going to do. But I think every once in a while, it's necessary to shock yourself, to make those creative juices flow, to think in a different way about the same ideas. And that's what's pretty compelling for me. I find the whole prospect of writing is not necessarily about the act of writing. It's the act of thinking and it's the act of philosophy. A lot of it is putting yourself in someone else's shoes. That's why we read books, I suppose. We read books because we're so fascinated by someone else's life, by someone else's story. And that's really, really gripping for me. Really uh, interesting perspective. Jaya, you know, before I really get into your journey as a writer, I still want to sort of explore on, that was quite a pivot, right? From computer sciences to writing and a completely creative uh, field. So were there any naysayers in the journey? Did you have any sort of self-doubt given that your qualification or your background is not in writing or journalism or anything else. So talk to me about what really was the turning point which really told you that, okay, this is my calling now. There's no looking back. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the agony for me was having spent all those years studying computer science, what gave me the right to actually throw that aside and move completely elsewhere, right? I mean, Is this a sense of privilege? Is it a sense of like, how does it make me relevant? And I I think that was uh, what I had to grapple with in my own head in terms of, am I doing the right thing? Because I've spent a half a lifetime 
studying and doing other things. And I think for me, the moment arrived when I met some really phenomenal people in my life. And one of them is Vandana Kumar, the uh, the publisher of India Currents. It's a magazine that has been around in the Bay Area for many years, since 1987. And I've always read it. It's one of these magazines that, you know, used to be a free publication. And it had at least one or two articles for every person. And one of my short stories was published, also won an award. At the same time, another story won the Lorraine Hemingway um, Award. And then I met some other writers and they were like, we were workshopping our work. And one of them told me, you're a writer. Why are you pursuing everything else? And it wasn't that I, I waited for someone else to acknowledge it, but it just seemed to affirm what I was thinking at that time, but scared to say it myself. Because yes, I don't have a background in writing. I don't have, I've not gone to J school. I haven't got a literature degree, but I know books. I have studied books. I have read books every day of my life I am reading. I have acquired the ability to parse um, information or read information in a particular way. So then when I started submitting to other journals and found myself becoming published, and then there was an opening for an editor at India Currents. And I thought without any background in writing, I would not get the job. But Vandana took a chance on me. And I think that really cemented my journey as a writer. When I became an editor, I set out to tell myself, I am going to learn everything I can from everybody who is submitting to me as the editor of this publication. And I set myself to do that, you know, learn from every article that came my way. And, you know, I just loved it so much. But unfortunately, then and now, um, the pay scale for journalists as compared to software engineers is so vast and so lacking resource that it just makes it hard for the average person to get into journalism, you know? So there are a lot of barriers. And more and more, I feel that these barriers complicate the whole journey of writing. You've actually picked up a question from my, you know, bank of questions for you from a financial independence perspective or from an earning perspective, was that a concern? Because to me, it looks like you didn't need any naysayers. You know, you were sort of doing a lot of introspection and a lot of thinking. So, you know, I mean, my husband and I had a pact that at any point of time, one of our careers would be ascendant. And there would be a time when his was ascendant and there was a time when mine was. So... I think having a partner who understands that is the way to go, right? I mean, you have to have someone who really understands the give and take of what marriage is and also what is necessary for a person to survive within or without a marriage, right? So for me, it was writing, plain and simple. I'm a writer that, you know, spends all my time writing and reading, so... Recognizing that, I think I give kudos to my husband. And 
yes, we didn't struggle greatly because of my loss in financial ability, but we did take a hit. I appreciate that, Jaya. Thank you for sharing. You know, it gives a lot of perspective. And like you said, it's a question which will come in everyone's mind. So looks like passion took the forefront. And yeah, like you said, financial the returns took a bit of a hit. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not bit, a large hit. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Jaya, uh, shifting gears a little bit, you know, your article about your mother is really heartrending. It's such a beautiful narrative. Did you have a theme in your mind when you started writing? Yeah. I think like anything else in life, caregiving is one of the most fraught experiences that we as daughters, as children of aging parents, we really struggle with this decision, right? I mean, many of my friends are also caregivers. And the bottom line is it's not easy either for the caregiver or the person being cared for, right? And it's often heartrending. There are moments when we both lose it. My mother lost it. I lost it, you know. And we tend to focus on these moments without realizing that I actually took care of my mother for, I don't know, 17, 18 years. And it was only towards the end that it became really, really difficult to take care of her. And in the manner of speaking, I have always taken care of my mother because she's not very adept at navigating the world at any level on her own. So, for example, she never knew how to sign a check. You know, we had to teach her how to do that. Yet, she was extremely intrepid in mastering things that she did not know. So I, you know, after my father passed away, I uprooted her from her own life in India and I brought her here to the U.S. and I set her up in my house in California. And I don't know, she learned by rote how to use the laundry machine, how to use the dishwasher, how to use the microwave. She had not known any of that when she was in India. So all that she needed, she learned. So when she declined cognitively, those learned skills disappeared. Then it became really difficult for her to manage her life because suddenly everything was alien. But on the other hand, it put an additional burden on me because, you know, I was like caring for her emotionally. But suddenly she became this helpless child. She didn't know how to do the simplest thing, like even heat up her coffee. Right. So it took such a toll on me that I just felt almost always on demand. You know, we'd hear her call my name at least a dozen times an hour and became almost impossible to work or function. Actually, if I went on a walk and with my dog and came back, she would be there sitting panicking. Where did you go? And the sense of time disappeared. It's all part of cognitive decline. So you lose your sense of time. And these things nobody really writes about. I mean, the, the struggles you face as a caregiver, more and more, you know, people are coming out with their stories. But these are the things that really kind of define your day. And as you go along, you kind of wonder, do I exist as a person? 
you know, I'm just a machine, just performing over and over again. So when it became really bad, then um, I decided to move her to India. And she passed away after, you know, five months. But I'm left here now with this whole mindset of did I do the right thing, right? For all the years I've spent taking care of her, the last few months, I was not there. Did I hasten her, her death? And when I went there and she didn't recognize me, that was a huge blow. I'm her daughter and she didn't recognize me, you know? So I used that, that article to pour myself out in that way. I just talked about how difficult it must have been for her without me and how difficult it was with her and without her and to take that decision. And there is no right or wrong decision. I've come to the conclusion that I didn't make a mistake by moving her to India. I would have definitely put her in a facility here close to me, but there weren't any. There just aren't any facilities that would accommodate someone like my mother who only eats South Indian food, who only, you know, she lost her ability at languages. So, you know, there's that too. So it, it just is one of those things that we live here in America for so many years, but we don't have the resources to actually take care of our older people. Yeah, sure. And in fact, that's what made me think when I read the article that is it that you're also sort of calling for some action through that article is something yeah. which I would love to talk about or explore on with you. Yeah. You know, policy around aging, I mean, it needs to be nonpartisan. There are no Republicans or Democrats or independents when it comes to aging. We're all aging. And the aging population in America is growing larger and larger, you know, as a size, as a proportion. And therefore, it needs to be one of these policies that everybody is concerned about. Yet you find Congress not moving on any of these policies. And it just boggles the mind. So as a journalist, I would like to spend maybe the next few years of my life just focusing on writing about aging issues and what does it mean to age? What does it mean to age in place? What does it mean to be part of a community of people aging? Yeah. So these are all things and, you know, the government can make things easier, but we don't see much action on this front. I mean, it's hard enough to keep Social Security intact. <laughs> love to talk about the short story project of yours. It sounded very interesting. I love the way you talked about a friend of yours who's even tried to perform on your characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. is that one of your favorite pieces? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Well, you know, my collection of short stories is called Transactions of Belonging. And the reason why I named it Transactions of Belonging is because the whole idea of belonging is essential to uh, sapient human beings. And in the process, there's always a little give and take, right? You know, you want to belong to a community. You need to devote yourself to, you know, you need to show up. You need to be there, for some of the big events. So there's this give and take that comes with belonging. So there's a collection of 11 stories, kind of look at this theme of belonging. And 
one of these stories is called His Curls. And this is about a nameless child. We do know the sex of the uh, person. It's a he for now. So he is born to a nameless family of a nameless ethnicity and religious background. But the mother is rooted in the events of the world. So she looks at the world and uses the world lens to look into her life. And as a result, there are all these like, you know, things that happen, the bad things that happen. There are assassinations, riots, bombings, and these assume a terrifying proportion for her. And then she begins to look at everything in her life with that sort of glasses on. And she begins to suspect her child. She believes that the child will end up doing something bad. And so I built up the tension in the story to the point where an actual event does happen with this child. And the mother is there when that event is happening. But at the very end, I leave it to the readers to decide whether the child did something bad or was it all part of an imagination. So that ending is completely not stated. Everything is implicit in that ending. So this dancer, Vidya Subramanian, who's a good friend of mine, when she read that story, she asked me if she could perform it. So she performed it. And so she interpreted the ending in the way that she wanted. And I think that I think that is what is nice, that people can take that story and do with it whatever they think suits them at that moment in time. Yeah, I think that was one of the stories that uh, got a lot of traction. I got theater majors asking to do that story as a monologue. And that story was performed twice. One also by the dancer, but I think it was in a different setting. But yeah. Gives a lot of satisfaction and a lot of sense of, okay, I'm on the right job, right? You truly did find your calling. And all these books in the background, I think, are a testament to the fact yeah. that it was good that you pivoted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. From a storyteller to a journalist and an editor. Like, how did you navigate that journey? Like, I see a lot of work in the space of, like you said, you know, even immigrants. So is there a theme in your mind which you're following or is it organic? Is there a starting and an ending point? Yeah. I think it was Arundhati Roy who said, for me, everything I see and absorb, I harness. And I think in one of her interviews, she said that. And I think that's what it is. It's about how you'll be walking down the street and then there's there's this idea that hits you, right? Or you'll be deep in a conversation with, you know, a colleague and these ideas kind of perforate out of conversations. So I work for this company called Ethnic Media Services, which is run by this amazing journalist called Sandy Close, who has won the MacArthur Genius Award and a whole host of other awards, including an Academy Award for one of the documentary films that she's produced. She is a big mentor for me. So we set up times where we just talk. 
We talk about stories that we could be working on. We talk about conversations we've had, which could evolve into stories. So, you know, just last week, she was telling me about a visit she had made to a community college. And I was listening to her and talk about how she walked into this community college and, you know, what struck her with, uh, you know, the demographics of the college and, you know, the food bank and everything, right? To me, I was just like, oh my God, there's a story there. There's absolutely a story there. I am going to be working on that story next. So all weekends, I've been like sort of researching community colleges, which ones I want to focus on. And I think that transition between journalism to fiction, which is also what I'm working on, is tough, but a lot of my journalism bleeds into fiction. And so I feel that journalism is also part of my fiction. And that's how I navigate it. I just kind of absorb it. I sort of see empathy, like the underlying philosophy in all your writing. The fact that you want to be relevant, the fact that you're thinking about what's current, that only comes from someone who's really thinking everything from the other person's perspective and not just his or her perspective is what stands out for me. Yeah. Well, you know, you're doing a little bit of that too, right? I mean, so the whole idea of interviewing someone is to understand that person, right? And to ask those questions that would elicit the answers that you believe would be interesting for your readers or listeners. And I do exactly the same thing, right? I mean, so when I'm doing an interview or I'm doing a story and I'm asking questions, it needs to be the kind of question that can elicit the kind of answers I know this person can give. Sure. Yeah, that's true. Starts with empathy at that level. It starts with empathy at that level. We want our subjects to be as complicated and as original as possible in order to be relevant to readers and listeners. And without empathy, you don't get that. You have to really be interested in that person's work. This actually takes me to a very interesting story at my level. And thank you for acknowledging Santa Diaries. So my husband works for a farm equipment company and we'd gone for this rodeo. And over there, we met this amazing lady called Donna, who's there on the show. She's 65 years old and she she got into professional rodeo at that age, you know. And to me, it's like I saw her and there's something about her which gravitated me towards her. And I'm like, can you come as a guest on my podcast? You know, so yeah. when you would you talk about the community college incident, it was I was really remembering that, that, you know, you look at everybody from that lens now going forward. So, and I think that's uh, pretty incredible for Atlanta Diaries or any journalist or our podcaster. Uh, it's all about attitude. And I think, you know, and that willingness to listen, right? <laughs> So true. And you know, to that, Jaya, I'm going to segue into a very interesting comment. You know, you said when you went into the editor's job with a certain arrogance. Talk to me about that. Well, you know, I think that is true, you know, because as soon as you receive a few pats on the back, you begin to believe that you're better than everybody else. But life has a way of teaching you that that's not really true. You know, no matter how many years of experience you have as a writer, there's always going to be some idea or thought that is out there that 
you have to learn from. I think at India Currents, I met so many fantastic writers and they showed me how the whole process of writing is really not about words. It's not about sentences. It's not about the grammar. It's about how you string stories together in order to make them interesting. And, you know, if you're thinking about it in a computer science perspective, there are so many combinations you can use to arrive at to tell that story. But there is one way that only you can, and you have to find that way, right? So if someone else says, oh, you should be writing it this way, well, that's not the way that I would write, right? And, and I think there's that arrogance. When you look at a misspelled word or a broken down sentence, the gut reaction is to fix that and believe that that person doesn't have a story to tell, but that's not necessarily the truth. Mistakes are common, but it's the overall picture that you need to kind of put together. Any anecdotes come to your mind when you talk about this part of the journey? I think what I learned was how to do interviews of people. Like what kind of question should I be asking in order to build my story? I have a project in mind. I have to, like say the community college story. I need to interview a whole bunch of people in order to get the, the real sense of how where the funding comes from, what is the funding used for, who are the people who are attending these colleges, who do I talk to, what are some of the subjects being taught, and are there students who can attend community college and lead a satisfying life later? So these are all questions that I need to be asking. I think I learned as an editor. That's not as a journalist, but more as an editor, because I saw how people were putting their ideas across. And it just comes from that idea of asking the right questions. Sure. Any setbacks in the journey or any mistakes, which, you know, when you reflect on, then with the wisdom of hindsight, you would do it differently? There are daily setbacks. I think as a writer, we all know how tough it is, right? especially as a freelancer, you know? First, we have to come up with an idea. We have to pitch the idea. The editor may or may not like the idea. Once the editor likes the idea, then we have to find our interview sources. Interview sources might say yes today or tomorrow, but they might back out. Or they might give you a whole interview and say, okay, I'm going to take it back. So, you know, there are so many levels that a story can stop you from actually delivering. For the last, I think, five years, I've been working on a mental health story. It's not a fiction story. It's, it's an actual um, reported piece where I've interviewed people at uh, children's hospitals. And I have come to find that in California, there are very few beds for children in undergoing psychological or emotional stress or disorders or any type of behavioral symptoms. And so this idea that where do parents take their children who are in a state of crisis? That story, I have pursued it from every angle and I'm not getting a breakthrough in the sense that 
I have interviews. I have more than like 15 interviews of people who say that this is a real problem. I've got interviews of doctors, of people running hospitals, but I don't have the essential element of a parent who's willing to go on record and say, my child had this problem and I didn't know where to take him or her. But, you know, every setback is... If you think about it, it's not really a setback because it actually led me to other articles, smaller articles, and I'm not the kind to give up. So this article will be done one day. And in the meantime, I'm pursuing a whole bunch of other ideas that I work on every day. Setbacks are only teaching experiences, learning experiences, I suppose. Given that you've pivoted so many times and you come from a lot of empathy and a lot of courage right? And doggedness towards what you're doing. Has any of these ideas ever made you feel, okay, I need to solve for a certain idea, like, you know, move away from writing and getting into doing something about it? So one of the things that I have been doing for the last two and a half years now is I am on a task force on government transparency and accountability in the city of San Francisco. It's called the Sunshine Ordinance Task Force. And I'm one of 11 member committee. And we listen to citizens who have complaints against the lack of transparency that governments show. And we listen to their sort of cases and adjudicate them in like a formalized setting at at City Hall. The last two years, it was on Zoom, but starting March this month, we've actually moved to City Hall. So it has shown me how government operates, what the log jams are in terms of transparency and accountability. Some of the cases are so interesting and so disturbing that when they come to us and just in preparation for these meetings, we have to go through close to 2,000 pages of documents and make sense of who's saying what. Is the government representative says something, you know, the city representative says something, the petitioner or the citizen says something. And then we have to make sense of what are they asking for? Why is the city department not providing it? And who is right? And what laws govern this? And I think it's been such a huge learning experience for me. And I've met a group of fabulous people who uh, sit on this task force. And we kind of think through every case, breaking it apart to its smallest details. And these meetings run a long, long, long time because they start at four in the evening and they go on till after midnight. Wow. Yeah. And members of the public are usually present at these meetings. So they participate. And I think being a member of this task force has taught me a lot. Um, And, you know, I'm sort of giving back in some way uh, also. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea that would segue into this, you know, I just felt when I was listening to you that clearly moments and situations bother you and disturb you. And I was wondering, what does that translate into? This has been so amazing, Jaya. When I would coach my own clients who were largely women leaders, I saw the same trends and the same themes and I wanted to sort of validate it, you know, to make sure that I'm on the right track. 
And as a writer, I would love to get your perspective on it. Like, for example, a lot of times women said that, you know, women have to prove their point, whereas men have to simply state it. And I'm wondering as an editor or being a part of the task force, or maybe even backtracking it and talking about your computer science journey. What's your perspective on this? Any anecdotes come to your mind? I feel that it's not as a woman, but sometimes as the only person of color sitting at a table sometimes. And maybe it's also because I'm a woman. I feel I need to be particularly careful about what I say. It's not a reflection. It's, I think, learned perspectives, but it's not a reflection of how I think people around me operate, but it's about how I've imbibed those feelings. So when I speak up, I feel that I have to have all my ducks lined up in a row. Only then can I speak up. But I see a lot of other people who start speaking and then gather their thoughts as they go along. So I feel that it's a different situation for me in my experience. I tend to be quiet and listen and then speak up only when I have full understanding of what is being discussed. And I think that is particularly true for women and women who are not born in, in this country and have that, you know, sort of ease with it, which you kind of jump into a conversation. That's very interesting, Jaya. And this is coming from the fact that you've been here now for the better half of your life, like more than 30 years, probably. Yeah, I have been here for most of my life, but I am Indian. Uh, I mean, I am Indian American. You know, you look at me, you know that I'm Indian, right? So in a room full of people, I'm conscious of that fact that I am an Indian American and therefore I am not exactly the same as everybody else. You were giving a convocation address few years back. And I'm wondering, is there a connection with that experience and what you're sharing right now? I think for the convocation speech that I gave, like I think in 2015 at San Jose State University, I spoke about that moment when one of my children's classmates, well, they had just come out of history class and this child had told one of my children that she would have been a slave if she had been born earlier. And it was a particular remark that I could see in my child's eyes that she really wanted me to refute it. She really wanted me to say that, no, no, you would never have been a slave. But the thing is that it was a conundrum because I could not refute it, nor could I agree with it because we have come to the country with a lot of assets. We have come with a solid background in education whereas the Black experience often is far less than, you know, what we have. And I think for me, I wanted my children to be empathetic, to realize that wanting to be part of a more privileged race is not the answer. The answer lies in recognizing who we are and showing empathy for who we are not. Mm-hmm. Do you think this experience has anything to do with what you're talking about now? And do you think things will change? Like, do you expect your daughters also to be more 
you know, be more aware of the fact that they are still women of color? One of my children is actually working in the space of criminal justice reform. So she's very aware of the tragedies that people of color face, especially women from certain backgrounds, and how the system is rooted in years and years of inefficiencies that keep certain communities down. And my other daughter, too, has had um, different kind of experiences, but I feel that, yes, the short answer is yes. My children are very aware of who they are in any circumstance. And that is Indian Americans. Mm. Thank you for sharing this, Jaya. So as we approach the end of the conversation, with the wisdom of hindsight, what would you tell your younger self? I would have told my younger self to have plunged into writing when I was 18 or 17, or 16, because that's what I loved to do. And I would tell anybody to take that risk. Because while I feel that I'm a better writer today, because I have this experience in all these other fields, but I don't know for sure, right? Yeah. I could have been a writer when I was 17. And by now, I would have had different kinds of experience, which have made taken me maybe in a different path. And... I just feel that I should have spent all my time writing, though part of me also feels like, you know, studying computer science was was an eye-opening experience too. Like, you know, it really taught me how to do analysis. And I think, you know, the thing with writing is that journalism in particular, or any other form of writing, demands a transfer of useful information in some form or the other, right? And the ability to analyze increasingly complex situations in new domains, I think I sort of learned it in computer science, right? But some people have the innate ability to do that. So I don't know. I actually don't know whether I would have been a better writer. I mean, and what is better? Where would I have been if I had started writing at at the age of 18? Would I have now gone into computer science? Who knows? And the other way to look at it is that you've tried everything and then come back to your calling. No regrets. You tried what your dad did and from his perspective, he wanted his daughter to be secure, you know, financially or get a secure job. And from the U.S. perspective, you did what was most relevant at that point of time. Right, right. So Jaya, before we end the conversation, you know, since Atlanta Diaries is a place where, you know, the intent is to help young women and men learn and unlearn their definition of success and achievement. What are your parting thoughts for aspiring leaders as they transition into larger roles or as they find their own greatness? I think be curious and investigative and humanly engaged with the world, I think. Not mechanically, but really like, you know, There is no profession which exists entirely on its own. You have to be a part of the cosmos of the universe, of the world, and be cognizant of everything that's going on around you. So I think being engaged with the world is what I would say. Thank you very much, Jayat. And I really appreciate all the candidness you brought to the conversation. Thank you, Enma. And of course, you asked the right questions too. Thank you very much for listening. 
all my guests have brought their most vulnerable selves on Atlanta Diaries. And even if a small segment of these conversations can help champion the journey of one person, it's going to be really worth it. I do have a request for you. Please share this podcast on your social media and with your family and friends. Our society is constantly evolving and Atlanta Diaries must too. I really appreciate if you can leave your feedback in the form of a review or a rating. These are impactful and rousing stories that need to be shared far and wide. See you next time for another one on Atlanta Diaries.